Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to be taking a look at a new book, a very interesting book titled The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. And the author of that book is Mr. Tom Hartman. Mr. Tom Hartman is an American radio personality, author, former psychotherapist, businessman, and progressive political commentator whose talk show has been rated in the top 10 shows for over a decade by Talkers Magazine. Tom Hartman, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for inviting me back. It's nice to see you again. I appreciate you being with me. Thank you so very much. We're going to get into your book. In fact, why don't we just dive into it right now? I, we, the founding fathers, for give them credit or not credit, whatever the case might be, they moved from a monarchical situation or monarchy and are ruled by kings and that type of thing into a more of a republic with democratic institutions. Where did, how did they make that transition to do that? That seemed like a quantum leap uh, because we think of democracy correctly or incorrectly um, being formulated uh, with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and even before that, probably. But how did they decide to do that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was it was a transition. And uh, the prevailing wisdom, European uh, wisdom at the time, uh, by and large, was that uh, democracy doesn't work. That you know, it it lasted you know fewer than a few hundred years uh, at the most, arguably less than a hundred years. Uh, was sort of democratic in the beginning, but quickly turned into you know, hail Caesar. And a lot of that started to change that sentiment in Europe, um, which influenced the founders. Uh, and the framers of the Constitution hugely in the uh, early 1700s. Throughout the 1600s, the French uh, trappers, mostly fur trappers, um, had quite successfully penetrated the uh, western part of the eastern, um, uh, well, of New York State, Massachusetts, uh, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, uh, that area. And they had brought with them uh, of uh, French missionaries, mostly Jesuits. And uh, one of the tribes, the Hurons, the, uh, associated with the Iroquois, um, welcomed these French missionaries they, they, because they were doing a lot of commerce uh, you know, with, the, with the French trappers. And uh, the missionaries then started writing an annual report, essentially, back to France to tell everybody about what they were experiencing, you know, living with the savages. And, uh, you know, they were pretty astonished, actually, and, and, and very respectful of the way that these uh, Huron people were living, um, that they had a functioning government, that it was a functioning democracy, essentially, small-D democracy, that 
um, there was no poverty, that there were no uh, uh, there was no great wealth. There were no kings. There were no princes. Uh, there were no jails. There were no police. There were no prisons. And yet their society worked and had worked for apparently thousands of years along these lines. This created these uh, uh, these uh, letters back home, essentially, to, to France, uh, some of them running, you know, 100 pages or more annually, uh, caught a huge audience uh, through from starting in the 1720s, mostly r- right up through the 1780s and 90s. Well, let's fast forward to 1787 when they were developing the U.S. Constitution. There, there are so many parts of the U.S. Constitution that we're debating today. And we, we see an erosion of, at least I think I see an erosion of some of the constitutional aspects. For example, there was a, a really an intense focus on the separation of church and state. That is yeah. being deteriorated every day. We can see that, that there's a movement to, to really Christian schools or whatever, or charter schools or whatever the case might be. Why did they focus so much on that separation of church and state? They, there was a, well, first of all, they, they had within their memory and in fact, in living memory, um, um, you know, grand persecutions by religious leaders. Uh, The Salem witch trials have been a hundred years earlier, but Massachusetts at the time of the constitution was being written still uh, in most parts of Massachusetts, you were required to pay a tax to fund the local church. And if you didn't show up on Sunday, you could be punished or fined uh, for church services for, for not showing up. So uh, there was a concern about that. They, these people also knew the history of England. and they, they were very familiar with Cromwell and the whole you know British civil war, essentially, that, that was around religion. Um, so uh, to, to a large extent. And so they they were strongly of the opinion. Uh, now I say they; it wasn't unanimous, um, but uh, j- broadly speaking, the founders of this and the framers of the Constitution were were of the opinion that uh, church and state should be separate for two reasons. One, it, the merging of church and state is bad for state um, governments. Get controlled by religion and religious figures, and and that uh, usually turns out poorly. Uh, The other was, and and that was the argument that Jefferson made. Jefferson was a deist. He was not a Christian, um, uh, as was Franklin, as was George Washington. uh, None of them were Christians. But, um, you know, but they were respectful of Christianity. Jefferson uh, took the the four Gospels of the New Testament, cut out all, with a razor blade, cut out all the uh, miracles, and that book, it's called the Jefferson Bible, is still in print today, you know, presenting Jesus as a kind of philosopher king. Um, but in any case, that you know, Jefferson and Madison had this ongoing debate through most of their lives. You know, Madison was Jefferson's protege, as well as being the father of the Constitution. And Madison was a church-going, you know, every Sunday church-going, uh, uh, practicing Christian. And he was worried that if the federal government ever started giving money to the churches, that it would corrupt the churches. He, he wanted his beloved Christianity to remain pure. Jefferson was worried that if a priest ever became president, that that would corrupt the nation. And, uh, you know, in other words, if religious figures ever acquired political power, turns out they were both right. <laughs> but, you know, for both... <laughs> On target. Yeah, for both those reasons, they, you know, in two different places in the Constitution, you have the separation of church and state. And in fact, Madison's first... Veto. He became president in 1809, following Jefferson leaving office. 
And his first veto in office was a veto of money that had been appropriated by Congress to pay for the uh, poorhouse poor in Washington, D.C. that George Washington had, had been started during the Washington administration um, that had up until that point been paid for directly with federal funds. It was our first uh, socialist experiment. Uh, the federal government provided housing, clothing, medical care, and food to, to indigent people. But in 1809, there was this minor religious revival going on in America. And so Congress sent Madison a bill that uh, took money uh, federal money and gave it to a church in D.C. to run the poorhouse. And Madison vetoed that in his veto message. He said this would set a terrible precedent for the country uh, and it would be a terrible precedent for Christianity. You don't want this to happen. And and uh, so, you know, the founders were quite clear that there should never be uh, government money supporting religion and religion should not be determining the policies of government. That, uh, you know, mostly in the United States changed. I mean, we've had it's gone back and forth. We had a minor religious revival in the 1820s as well. Um, but um, and another one in the 1890s, uh, out of which came the Seventh-day Adventist Church and, and others. Um, but the, the big the big push to incorporate religion into politics came with the Reagan administration. Reagan hired uh, George W. Bush to be his liaison to the evangelical community. And Bush brought in Jerry Falwell and Franklin Graham and and uh, um, uh, Pat Robertson and uh, Ralph Reed. And then uh, George Herbert Walker Bush tripled down on that when he became president with his uh, very explicit program to funnel federal money into churches in exchange for their giving you know, political support to the GOP. Uh, he called it his Thousand Points of Light program. And then his son, George W., tripled down or quadrupled down on it when he became president with what he called the faith-based initiatives. All of these things are things that would have made the founders run in the other direction. You think this is a temporary phenomenon? It seems like we're into another one of these religious revivals and blurring the lines between church and state. Do you think this is temporary or how do you think it's going to end? I do think it's temporary. I think that there is a growing awareness within the Christian church broadly, I mean, multi-denominational, um, and sectarian, that uh, that this is not working out well. Um, there was a fascinating op-ed in Christianity Today last week, uh, written by, uh, uh, I'm forgetting his first name, his last name is Moore, uh, I think it's Robert Moore, uh, who is the uh, publisher and editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, talking about the number of pastors who have uh, reached out to him and said that when they preach Jesus, when they preach the Gospels, when they preach from the Sermon on the Mount or Matthew 25, turn the other cheek, uh, love your enemies, um, you know, care for the homeless, feed the hungry, heal the sick, um, that when they preach that, they get blowback, that people come up to them afterwards and say, you know, you can drop all that liberal stuff. Um, you know, uh, we, we, that's weak. We don't want that weakness in our religion. And he's pretty, pretty alarmed about it. And I think that alarm is spreading rapidly and broadly through Christianity. The one, the one problem, of course, is the Supreme Court. We've got, um, you know, a majority Catholic Supreme Court. In fact, uh, I believe there's uh, one Jew and everybody else is Catholic. Elena Kagan is Jewish and, and uh, um, Neil Gorsuch was raised Catholic. He goes to his wife's Presbyterian church, but, uh, or, uh, uh, or which, whatever, I think the Church of England. Um, but, uh, you know, he hasn't renounced Catholicism. And uh, they're, you know, hell-bent for leather to use, uh, you know, religious freedom as an excuse to uh, tolerate uh, basically bigotry. 
Um, you know, we saw this in the in the cake baking thing. We saw it more recently and well, there have been a number of these cases. So, yeah. Yeah, that's very, very true. I'm glad you mentioned the Supreme Court, too, because that's our third co-equal branch of government, so to speak. We have the executive legis- or legislative executive and then the, the uh, Supreme the Supreme Court court system. How do you perceive what's going on today with a Supreme Court that has a popularity rating slightly above um, used car dealers, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to give used car dealers a bad name or anything. Like that. <laughs> in the 20s, upper thir- lower 30s. And you have several members of that Supreme Court, uh, thanks to ProPublica's really wonderful investigative reporting that's shown how allegedly corrupt these people are, starting off with Clarence Thomas, who's received hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars in pro bono gifts. You've got uh, Samuel Alito has been alleged that he's now topped a billion dollars. And I'm not sure how you do it with a Supreme Court justice's salary. You've got uh, John Roberts, the chief justice, his wife has received large sums of money. Why is it that the Supreme Court does not have a code of ethics? And what can the U.S. Senate do to help rectify this problem? This This is absolutely destroying the credibility of the Supreme Court, in my opinion. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Bill. And there is a federal law that the uh, that Alito and Thomas and and Roberts and uh, perhaps others um, uh, are in violation of. Uh, there is a law that applies to all the fed- federal judiciary, which includes the Supreme Court, that requires disclosure of these kinds of gifts. Thomas uh, has said that he was simply following Scalia's practice. Uh, he, he and Scalia used to go to the Koch brothers' events and. You know, they'd get wined and dined by right-wing billionaires all the time. And um, that that's, uh, uh, you know, it was bad advice. <laughs> he should have followed the law. He should have disclosed these gifts for the last 20 plus years. Um, but that, you know, that law needs to be enforced. The problem is that, um, you know, I don't think the, uh, the, the executive branch, I don't think the Department of Justice wants to prosecute Supreme Court justices for violations of judicial ethics. And even if they did... Where would the case end up? It would end up before the Supreme Court. Right. They're the final arbiters of all disputes yes. between the executive and judicial branch, or between any of the two branches, any two of the branches. So, uh, you know, everybody's just kind of holding their breath and hoping that the court adopts a, a code of ethics that they themselves can live by. Uh, I'm not uh, optimistic that that's going to happen, um, uh, short of Clarence Thomas resigning. I mean, he's clearly the the, the worst of the bunch, uh, you know, not to mention his wife, you know, trying to overthrow the government of the United States. Uh, it's its problematic. It certainly is. And I remember so many people commented, oh, what a great shock. What a revelation. This was openly discussed. I remember 20 years ago, Rush Limbaugh on his show was talking about this, talking about what a good friend Clarence Thomas was and how he was going here, hither and yon with all of these folks and was actively involved in many of these activities. It, it just took us a long time to wake up to look at what was going on. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. If you're involved in any type of educational institution, or a PBS or community access television station, 
or you just have a podcast, or you just have a computer, and you like our shows, please feel free to share them. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very interesting book by Tom Hartman, and we're talking about really how uh, the whole concept of democracy and the republic took hold in the United States. Tom, we, there's so many issues we could talk about, especially with the, the Supreme Court and what have you, but the lion's I, I guess the 800-pound gorilla in the room right now has to be the January 6th insurrect, failed insurrection, uh, at least up to this point, uh, to overthrow a fair, free election and basically overthrow the U.S. government to some degree. That's been alleged. How do you perceive this as something that the Founding Fathers never perceived or never conceived or maybe did? and included something like the uh, the 14th Amendment to deal with it later if it did happen. What What is your take on that? Donald Trump led an insurrection against the United States. He did it uh, through legal channels. He did it through physical channels, through brute force on January 6th. Um, there are six different places in the Constitution where insurrection is specifically prohibited or criminalized. Um, he violated the laws of the United States. He's now facing almost 100 criminal charges as a consequence of it. And frankly, I hope he goes to prison for it. I, I you know, I think if if uh, Richard Nixon had gone to jail or at least been prosecuted for the crimes that he committed against our country, uh, I think it's extremely unlikely that Ronald Reagan would have thought it was a good idea to cut a deal with the Ayatollah to hold on to the hostages to screw Jimmy Carter. I think it's uh, extremely unlikely if if Nixon had gone to jail for his crimes that George W. Bush and Dick Cheney would have thought they could get away with lying us into two wars that killed over 7,000 Americans and cost us $5 trillion and, and, a, and a half a million uh, Iraqi and Afghan lives. Um, and I think it's extremely unlikely that Donald Trump would have done half the crimes he did while he was in office. He thought he was immune because Nixon got away with it. And frankly, you know, his biggest, his closest advisor in all this was Roger Stone, who was with Nixon through all that. Uh, he's got Nixon tattooed on his back, literally. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the grand lesson of this, I think, is the lesson that we should have learned in 1974, uh, but we didn't because Jerry Ford that year pardoned Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. There, There's a lot of speculation now that there's a chance that Donald Trump could actually be reelected unless, the, what is it, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of or the 14th Section Amendment, three. Section 3 is applied and that he is precluded from any holding for future offices, given his role in the January 6th insurrection, if if for some reason, some strange reason, he were reelected, do you think he would actually dismantle the administrative bureaucracy? He would weaponize the governmental agencies, which he started to do before, right before he left office, that he would pull us out of NATO, he would destroy NATO, probably pull us out of the United Nations, all to the detriment of the United States all of everything that would weaken the United States. Do you think that he would actually do that? With the exception of pulling out of the UN, he's already proclaimed that he will do everything that you just listed, Bill. I mean, you know, he's he said that he would direct the Department of Justice to go after uh, Joe Biden, the, the Biden crime family, uh, and his other political enemies. Um, there is a, a wall of separation right now that was broken during the during the Trump administration. It was broken during the Nixon administration. It's, it's why uh, John Mitchell, Nixon's attorney general, went to prison himself. 
uh, was for using the Department of Justice for political purposes. But, but uh, uh, you know, Trump has said that that's what he intends to do. Um, he has, he's openly in favor of uh, Putin's side in the Ukraine conflict. He, he tried to get us out of NATO. He tried to destroy NATO, actually, uh, you know, when he was president. He would get much more aggressive about that. It would be the end of the American experiment if Trump was elected again. I don't think it's possible. Um, I, you know, I think the one, if you look at the polling, the one remote possibility would be if uh, sometime close to the election, uh, Joe Biden were to pass away or become incapacitated and Kamala Harris became the president. And uh, then it was a Kamala Harris versus Donald Trump race. Uh, then some of the polling suggests that Donald Trump might win. But we're so far out and, and most Americans really don't have a sense of Kamala Harris yet that I'm not sure that that would necessarily be the case on Election Day anyway. But, but uh, yeah, it, it is a threat. It's a danger to our republic. He is a danger to our republic. And one of the key institutions that should be providing information, objective information about what is happening politically, culturally, uh, economically, just on across the board, are the U.S. media, mainstream media plus uh, left-wing talking stations, right-wing talking stations. Well, we have a situation in this country that's really, we're oversaturated with right-wing spin machines. And uh, for example, Fox, which just got hit with the Dominion lawsuit for what, $750 million or something. And Smartmatic is going to sue them for even more than that. Newsmax, which is, I think, under lawsuit also, One American News. But there's no balance as far as providing messages to the American public, is there? I mean, your program does a great job. You've got a few others, but really, it's it's really overloaded with right wing, especially talk radio, which permeates this country from coast to coast and border to border. How do you perceive the role of the media and what can be done to bring more balance into it? Do we need to re reenact the fairness doctrine? I, you know, the fairness doctrine to Rush Limbaugh, and uh, it wouldn't force radio stations that carry my show to carry a right-wing show after my show. Uh, the, the Fairness Doctrine only mandated that um, uh, political candidates had to have equal time, and, uh, you know, when, when their opponents were uh, on television, and that if the owner or manager of a station offered an opinion on air, and back back in the day, uh, like newspapers, uh, radio and TV stations used to run editorials that was the voice of the uh, of the owner and management. Then there had to be a, a, a balancing opinion on the other side. I mean, I, back in the '60s when I worked in radio and produced a talk show uh, uh, that was done by the owner of the station, Chuck Mefford, back in the day at WITL. I mean, part of my job was to find people to do those rebuttals, but um, it, it was it was a small help. The other thing that the Fairness Doctrine did is it required what was called programming in the public interest, and that was widely understood to be news at the top of the hour. The problem that we have now is, to, I, Bill, I think twofold. One is that we've got a bunch of organizations out there that are calling themselves news that are actually opinion machines. Um, you know, the, the the networks that you talked about. Um, the, these 1,500 right-wing radio stations. Um, and, you know, I'm up front on my show. I don't, I don't call my show news. It's, it's the, you're getting my opinion. Um, and, and, and some of my right-wing contemporaries are as well. But uh, these television, some of these television networks go out of their way to try to pretend that they're actually providing news to people, and, and they're not. They're providing, uh, you know, misinformation and disinformation, sadly. Um, I don't have an easy solution for that. I don't I don't want the government to have the power 
to take down, uh, you know, right wing television or radio, because that would mean that they would have the power to take down left wing television or radio. And, you know, what happens when somebody like Trump, you know, Ron DeSantis becomes president? So uh, I, 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 I don't see an easy solution. The other part of the problem, uh, particularly with regard to like the 1500 radio stations or the 200 and some odd Sinclair TV stations, is that in 1996, prior to 96, from, from the 1920s up until 1996, we had uh, in place laws that regulated how many radio, television and newspaper stations, how many radio and TV stations and newspapers an individual family or corporation could own and how many could be owned by the same entity in a single state. And in 96, when Bill Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act, it blew that up at the end of those ownership rules. And the result of that it was that Clear Channel, which was a little regional company down in the Southeast that had you know, maybe fewer than 100 stations, I believe, scattered across half a dozen states. Um, you know, within a year, they had a thousand stations and they were putting right wing talk radio on a whole pile. Of them. And yes. Yeah. So now, you know, the majority of the radio stations in America are owned by three or four companies. And that's that's not healthy. That um, it certainly is not healthy, and we hopefully we can balance it out again without giving the government too much control. Well, Tom Harbin, these are extremely important topics, and I'm so glad we had a chance to revisit them again. We'll have to get back together soon because there are so many more that we didn't get to. But I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to see you again. Good to see you. My pleasure. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.